I love the generative moment in a really engaging conversation when the world falls away and you forget time and place. I've had listening as a secret superhero power for as long as I can remember. I think listening helps build a great conversation and real listening is done with an open curiosity and very little of your own agenda. It may sound easy, but it can be really hard to do. I like to make connections between ideas and people. It's just the way my brain works. Why do we connect with other human beings? I think it's part of the hierarchy of needs. Comfort, connection, community. I've always been uncomfortable with the question, what do you do? I don't equate what you do with who you are. We all have multiple interests, passions, families, backstories, and futurescapes that make us who we are. Every interaction changes us, some in big and some in small ways. I hope this podcast changes you. Joy Harjo, Crazy Brave. I release you, my beautiful and terrible fear. I release you. You are my beloved and hated twin, but now I don't know you as myself. I release you with all the pain I would know at the death of my children. You are not my blood anymore. I give you back to the soldiers who burned down my home, beheaded my children, raped and sodomized my brothers and sisters. I give you back to those who stole the food from our plates when we were starving. I release you, fear, because you hold those scenes in front of me, and I was born with eyes that can never close. I release you. I release you. I release you. I release you. I am not afraid to be angry. I am not afraid to rejoice. I am not afraid to be black. I am not afraid to be white. I am not afraid to be hungry. I am not afraid to be full. I am not afraid to be hated. I am not afraid to be loved. To be loved, to be loved, fear. Oh, you have choked me, but I gave you the leash. And you have gutted me, but I gave you the knife. And you have devoured me, but I laid myself across the fire. I take back myself, fear. You are not my shadow any longer. I won't hold you in my hands. You can't live in my eyes, my ears, my voice, my belly, or in my heart, my heart, my heart. But come here, fear. I am alive, and you are so afraid of dying. Michael Clority is an Emmy award-winning video editor who has worked in the Boston television news for 25 years. Over the past decade, he has expanded his storytelling with short videos about the local craft beer scene and a documentary about the Dropkick Murphys. He has also bungee jumped and performed open mic stand-up twice each. Both were equally terrifying and thrilling. He lives in Malden, Massachusetts with his wife, Jen, and their miniature pin- pincher, 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 a min pin. Guinness. For more information, visit michaelclority.com. It's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-L-O-H-E-R-T.com. This is Felicia, and my podcast is Hi, Felicia. And my guest today is Michael Clority, and he wrote a 
really interesting. We call it, is it heist crime? Is that your uh, genre right now? It was one of the categories would be heist crime. I, it's funny when you have to categorize what you write when, it, when it's a few different things. It's kind of a historical fiction mm-hmm. based on a true crime. Yeah. It's a little more wordy than heist crime. Yeah, it's called able-bodied. And it's very cool because uh, you have a Malden connection we can talk about. The book has a Malden connection, which I found really interesting. But you're also setting it in a really in- interesting, well, it took place in a really interesting time period in our country. And then you're dealing with a fairly well-known family name that originated in the Malden area as well. So... So we'll definitely get into the book, but let's talk about you a little bit. You, What's your connection to Malden? I uh, lived in Malden my whole life. Never left the zip code. I have left the zip code, but I never lived outside the zip code. That's cool. So you went. You grew up in Malden. What neighborhood did you grow up in? I grew, I grew up right near uh, the pool and the post office. Okay. So I was very close to the square, between the square and Oak Grove. And you went to Malden High? I actually went to uh, Chevris initially, and then I went to Pope John in Everett. Oh, that's cool. My it no longer no, no longer exists. <laughs> my husband uh, grew up in Malden as well. Um, I am not an original Maldonian, um, but some of his family member, uh, like um, extended family, is um, the Tolstrips. So Barbara Tolstrips been part of the historical society for a while. I think she's she came to our wedding this um, fall. She's 91, so she's oh. seen many changes in Malden. <laughs> <laughs> what came, from a few years ago. Yeah. How many, um, what, what have you thought about the changes in, that have happened, that have taken place since you've lived in Malden? Well, it's, uh, I mean, since I was born in 1972, so I'll be 50 later in the year. Uh, I, you know, it's it's uh, a growing city, and it's it's. Uh, I think now the revitalization of the downtown uh, in the recent 10, 15 years with the new restaurants, and uh, it's been really fantastic. I'm happy that they opened up the the old city hall to open up. Yeah, me too. Uh, Street back to the train station, which was a problem for many many decades before I even remember. I think it's cool too. The um, the book takes place. Uh, the, well, the the bank, it's about uh, bank robbery and a murder, but the bank is actually still here. It's just, it's the, it's the, it's faces now, correct? Well, the original building, the original bank was built in 1850, but it's a much smaller structure. It was only one story uh, and uh, very small. It was only maybe a uh, quarter of, of the footprint or even less of, of the current building that's there, which is built around 1900. So the original bank was was there from 1850 to, to the end of the century, uh, and then it was knocked down and the newer structure was built. Oh, okay. So the, the actual place where the murder happened, it's, it's the same location, but not the same structure. Gotcha, gotcha. That was the first bank that my husband had an account in, so he was very excited. Oh. <laughs> I do remember the funny the thing I think about when I, this, this novel took a long time research and just kind of uh, you know, marinating uh, research and, and having not written a novel before, but just keeping at it. And it took about eight years. But I remember going back. It was always a bank, uh, I believe, around 2012 when I was starting to write this novel and researching it. I think it was a Bank of America. And I was not a customer, but I was really curious uh, about the location of the crime. And I walked into the Bank of America in very high ceilings. And I looked around, 
uh, trying to get my bearings, and I walked out, the, and security guard followed me out. He thought, oh, she's either casing the joint or maybe, <laughs> maybe off my marbles. But I, was, I wasn't banking. I was just wandering around and, and just trying to get a, a sense of the place. So that was – that's why Pleasant Street, too, the, right where you are. And, and when I spoke to the mayor, the mayor, Gary Christensen, has been terrific, and Kevin Duffy with the city. Uh, everyone in Malden, they feel more connected to Malden since the summer festivals and since yeah. uh, all the things with the book, just because I can talk to people about about the book and, and – uh, and how what they think of it and what they think of Malden. Uh, I walk up and down Pleasant Street, and I, I feel like I would have during the novel, and then now that, that it's been published, I still feel immersed in the real story and then the imagination yeah. of these characters that I built upon. I think that's so cool because, I, I, and it may be because I've been involved with different Malden art groups and as well as recording down here at, at UMA, um, but I feel like Malden has... Uh, an interest and a love and a respect for its history. And um, we are so lucky to have Malden Library and the collection that they have there. And did when you were doing any of your research, did you get to go into like the special section where they have a lot of the Converse portraits and things? Yes, and initially I went in there. And again, as a, as a small boy, when that, before the library edition, I believe, was done in the 90s, and so the original building is still there, and they made the new building look somewhat similar to the original structure, which is just a, a kind of an architectural gem yeah. uh, built in 1885 as a, a memorial to Frank, Francis Converse yep. uh, by his uh, affluent parents. And so I did as a child in, in the long reading room there see the portrait of Frank, see Elijah and Mary's his, his parents on either side of him. Uh, you know, as a kid, not really know too much about, you know, that he was shot and he was murdered in the first bank robbery in American history, but... That kind of stayed with me. So when I tried in my 20s to write a novel, which is still kind of, that one is fiction, also based, complete fiction, also based in the like 1880s or so. So it's drawn to that time period. Uh, so I eventually, when I decided to get into the story further with research, it made a lot of sense to go back to the, the portrait I stared at as a boy. And people would know the Converse name because of the sneaker. And um, tell us how the that part of the family is connected to the folks that are in your story? Well, you know, the thing I tell some people, I think of, uh, again, this is just kind of a writer's imagination. There, the, the, if it wasn't for, some of it's based on facts, but if, if the the murder of Frank Converse didn't happen, uh, I wonder uh, that, so the library was there and the name was there, but the, the father, Elijah, was a desperate from a young age. He was born in Needham. Spent some time in Connecticut, uh, moved up to Stoneham, uh, got into, uh, became president of the bank where Frank was going to be an employee and uh, where he died. And he also was uh, in charge of the Boston River Shoe Company, which is uh, now located where Super 88 is on, on Commercial Street. Yep. It was a huge factory there, similar to the big smokestacks that are down in Oak Grove, which was another factory that Converse had. Uh, very wealthy rubber shoes were new. Vulcanized rubber was a new uh, phenomenon, which is actually this is why the time period is so fascinating to me because Vulcanese forever was new and then the actual revolver was new. So a lot of these things and these people's lives were changing uh, yeah. and, and, and they influenced the story, they influenced the true facts. Elijah's very wealthy. Uh, when he passed on, uh, he, Frank was, when the, the story that I had in the fiction was, which made sense to me, was that the father was grooming his firstborn son by trading him the bank, and then hopefully taking over the rubber plant later on. Uh, Frank died at an early age, 
Elijah did have other children. He had another, uh, he had a daughter, uh, who, and then he had a, a younger son. And the son, uh, at that time, later in life, didn't wasn't interested in going into the business. So Elijah, as an old man, sold off the company. And uh, two years after he died, a fourth cousin, Marquise Mills Converse, who was about 40 years old, and they used the word near to well at the time. He just hadn't found himself at 40, which uh, <laughs> was pretty old, I guess, in, in around 1900. He was a name. His name was Converse, and he, he uh, decided to open his own sneaker company in Malden. And I think he just kind of, on the coattails of his more famous cousin, made one of the most famous companies in the country, uh, in the world, sneaker companies, based on the fortunes of, of what his, his uh, relative had done. It sounds like the Adams. That's kind of like what the Adams family was. So you had, um, <clears throat> you know, the Adams that became president, and then his 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 cousin Sam. <laughs> <laughs> well, the name helps. You know, the name always helps. Yeah. And and uh, but I like you know it's almost because, you know, if if uh, in Marquise Mills he, you, the it's not inside my story, but the fact of, of basketball and the basketball sneaker. And, and the famous Chuck Taylors that we all know made Converse what it is, and that's what the, that's the sneaker that all the NBA players wore uh, through the '60s and '70s, I yeah. think, before Nike and those other ones were introduced. So his uh, the timing, a lot of it's timing, and then also luck. I'm sure hard work as well. That's cool. Do you have um, do you have a selection of the book that you'd like to read, so people can get sure. a little I flavor? Was looking just I was going to keep it. I did a reading on the anniversary of the murder was December 15th. Yeah. And so I did uh, Hugh O'Neill's, which is actually across the street from where the bank used right, to be. Right, right. Is, is uh, Hugh O'Neill's was where Edward Green's post office was. Oh, that's so cool. So basically that day, and this is the, the scene as well, is pretty much in the, almost like the middle of the book, but uh, Edward Green, uh, imagine a dirt road, 1863, there's horses and buggies, um, they have, you know, have gas lights, and his friend Frank is the teller across the street, 17 years old. Edward is 26. Edward is, uh, had an injury early in life. He had an infection in his knee, so he, he wasn't uh, able to walk. Is this post-Civil War or pre? Like It's during Civil War. During. It's actually the, kind of, the caveat, if you look at uh, early kind of cursory research, uh, even on the Wikipedia page, I don't think it's been updated at all. Uh, when you, if you look bank robberies, and you know you go through the most famous ones, 1934 was a very busy year with Bonnie and Clyde and, yep. and Dellinger, uh, Babyface, all those people, Babyface Nelson, Jesse James in 1866. That's after the war. They call uh, Edward Green a wartime murder, mm. uh, and there were certainly soldiers from Malden heading south, but the Civil War was hundreds of miles away so this the the actual murder had nothing to do with with wartime although at the at the time there was some suspicion that a confederate had come up by train because uh, people didn't think some one of their own had done it yeah but it was not a wartime crime it happened during a war which was hundreds of miles away so it has a little caveat almost like an asterisk like a roger maris of murder uh, <laughs> And, and Jesse James was a Confederate, and he was a bank robber, and that, that's a whole other political thing that he was doing in the South. But Evergreen was just, uh, I like to think of him as, as a, a desperate opportunist yeah. who, who just saw the money in front of him and killed his close friend to how, try to get out of his debt. How do you think he got the gun? 
he well, he bought the gun in, in Boston uh, at a department uh, at a, a gun store, Reed's Gun Store, and he had purchased it. He had had it done before. Uh, guns again were relatively, as, as, you know, if you think about this, the colonial war and all those times where people had muskets and they had to uh, clean it out and, and put the powder and yep. you know it took forever. That's why the the, the redcoats had problems because the colonists, uh, revolutionaries would go on all sides and that wasn't the way they fought. They, they actually have the revolver. We have multiple chambers, uh, Smith and Wesson. This is Smith and Wesson number one that Edward Green had. Very tiny little gun. Uh, was made in Springfield. They're still in Springfield for the moment. I don't think they're going to move. And he was just so close to Frank when he shot it. And Frank, it was the back of the head, so Frank didn't know it. But, uh, you know, people had guns back then. It was, uh, Malden was not the Old West, but it was a small town. Uh, about 6,000 people in 1860. A lot of them would take the, the train. It was a relatively new development. The depot was uh, currently, you know, the Malden Station now was built in 1975. Uh, if you go to Pearl Street Station on Summer Street, that was also a train station. Uh, there's a marking on the wall there, 1891. Yeah, yep. The original station in, in Malden uh, Depot was on the corner, uh, very close to where the Malden station is now, kind of between Pearl Street and, and the station on the corner, just an open-air depot. Okay. Uh, and that's people take the train into Boston to work. And so the town was mostly empty uh, in the middle of the day uh, between 1130 at 1145, 1130s when the last customer was in the bank to make a deposit to cash the check. And 1145 is when Frank was found on the ground. I'll ask you some questions about true crime later, but why don't you read a, read a selection? So this scene here, uh, again, at Hugh and Neil's, I read the entire uh, chapter, which contains the murder. But for this, I'll make it a little bit shorter. Uh, it'll just be uh, uh, about three or four pages. Sounds good. So... Building up to the scene, Edward, again, is very desperate. His wife is due with their first baby uh, within two weeks. This is December 15th, 1863. The post office, uh, he had borrowed, he had bought books for the school, a local school uh, committee, and he they had given $500, which he had misappropriated for his own uh, needs, and he owed all this money. He was told by the post office in Boston that he did not repay the money he owed by the early January of 1864, that he may lose his, his position and he also may be uh, sued by the, the publisher. So this is him uh, the morning of the murder. He's already crossed the street twice at this point, uh, and he comes across the stranger who comes into the bank, which was a fictional thing, and he borrows the coat from the stranger. So this is this is uh, from that scene, at least Felicia. Edward put on the stranger's coat. It doesn't quite fit, but I'm not playing on wearing it more than once. Next, he placed the fur cap upon his head and agreed that the stranger was correct. The cap was warm and flimsy. Yet Edward was still enamored of these items. While the fit was not perfect, they were quite warm, much more so than his own winter attire. Edward looked in the mirror at the image and did not recognize the man before him at all. He sipped from a milk bottle and then bit into the loaf his friend Marshall had delivered to him the day before. Maybe I can change who I am on the outside to fool myself about who I am on the inside and forget, at least for a few crucial, crucial minutes, oh, very much, I love the boy. Before leaving, Edward looked out the window to survey the street. He was annoyed to see the snow had not deterred activity as much as he had hoped. He noted George Bailey entering the bank 
and exiting a couple minutes later. John Rich left the barbershop and was walking east on Pleasant Street, just across from the post office, where he nodded at Bailey, talking to a man outside Edwards View beside the bank. Edward looked up at the clock, which stood at 11.24. Seeing Rich move further up the street and out of eyeshot, and then Bailey and the other gentleman traveled further down Middlesex Street, Edward exited the post office. His pace was slow, more so than usual, but with a new, more defined purpose. He projected his image outwardly as well as inwardly as someone else entirely. Edward entered the bank, and seeing an empty besides Frank, took a deep breath. Good to see you, Eddie. You look different. When you approached, I almost didn't recognize you. It's been busy this morning. You didn't say anything on your last visit. I thought maybe you were mad at me. I wasn't. I'm not mad at you, Edward said, and he meant it. I would like some change for my $20 bill, please. Are you able? I am, Frank answered before Edward finished his sentence. Frank got up from his desk and turned his back to reach for the change and the loose bills he kept close by. Edward scampered forward. He entered through the small gate behind the counter. His own footsteps almost caused him to stumble. He didn't want to hesitate. He'd been hesitating too long. Saying the fire hadn't worked, his debts remained, and his desperation had only grown. Do it, he thought. There would be no witnesses. He had tried his best to make sure of that. Do it, his thoughts demanded again. He was directly behind the boy. At that moment, Frank turned his head over his right shoulder. Everett raised his revolver, pulled the trigger instinctively, as if he had been threatened, as if he were responding to an attack instead of perpetrating one. He was in shock as the pistol exploded. Edward recoiled both in body and in spirit. The right side of Frank's head shattered, and the noise of the impact somehow seemed louder to Edward than the firing of the pistol. The boy fell. Eddie, Frank cried. The terrible deeds being started, and knowing there was no going back, no undoing it, Edward stepped closer, with the, now, with the boy now on the ground, his head angled to one side, but still looking up at him, and fired once more as Frank wore an expression mixed with confusion and pain. Edward would never know what Frank wanted to discuss with him. He wondered about it, what it could be for an instant. Maybe it was about a girl, but all he could see was Frank's agony, and all he could hear was his friend calling his name. Edward did not want to see that look or hear that cry anymore, but he was aware that neither would ever depart him. That's just a little bit towards the end of that chapter. Yeah, that's, I think you really capture, um, it's not, it's not um, sympathy, but it's some understanding of the character and the motivation. So him not being a purely evil person, but rather a desperate one. Um, yeah, the gray is always more interesting than the black and white. You think about, yeah, uh, and think about his children. He's always cartoons a lot of times, and they, you know, animations improved as a whole of stories even for children. But everything is so black and white. The the white hat, the black hat, and it's it's much more interesting to have someone who's more human. Yeah, and then it's it's very easy to believe uh, the desperation. I think sometimes we get, like you said, enamored with the. Um, uh, the drama of uh, whether someone's a psychopath or a sociopath and and those like psychologically speaking those tend to be much more rare 
people mm-hmm. who commit crimes are usually it, it's a crime of desperation a lot of the time. So, um, yeah, and I agree. That which I think that makes you, it roots your book again, even though you fictionalized some things, it roots it back in the in the real facts of the story and the nonfiction part. Um, why do you think that true crime is is so f- like having a moment now? Why do you think that that captures people? Imagine keep in, in some ways it's a distraction from COVID, probably. Yeah, uh, but it, it's still uh, you can be uh, caught up and in, in, you know, live vicariously through a book uh, or a film and have the fear and, and you know root for the heroes and and boo the villains or just try to figure out the, the motivations or complications of of the choices and lives that people uh, are born into or, 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 you know, circumstances that they choose, which have led them astray to its combination of those things, I would think. And I think, yeah, just the, the amount of, of uh, just looking at streaming and looking at on, on television shows uh, and books, the amount of, of success in that genre is just, it's not something I did on purpose. It was just a story that was in my hometown and, okay. and drew me to it. But I can see that, you know, I'm I'm kind of glad that uh, it was it was fun to write. I mean, it's it's uh, more dark char- characters and, and trying to s- motivations, and, and then uh, you know minor characters play a big big role as well. Yeah. Do you? Um, <clears throat> how did you decide upon point of view that you were going to use for your narrator? The the uh, I had a couple of different choices, uh, Felicia, where I wanted. I think in the beginning of those improving as a writer and, and hopefully uh, just working at it. I was too far into Edward Green's head and I needed to, uh, on my own and then with my copy editor and uh, later on to do more, you know, I had a lot of dialogue, I had scenes, I had a lot of internal thoughts. So it was too much of Edward. So I uh, turned some of that into dialogues and, and action. And then I thought the, the witness, William Shiloh, who was, a real person in a barbershop. He was an African-American who had been born in Delaware uh, and had come up to Malden in the late 1850s before the Civil War. Uh, was, he had five, a wife and five children, had the barbershop on Pleasant Street, which is where All Seasons Table is now. So his, if you can mm-hmm. imagine Pleasant Street or, or people listening who, who know Malden mm-hmm. uh, on Pleasant Street today, if you can think of it as a dirt road, but if you look at uh, on the left, where Hugh O'Neill's would be, would be the post office. There's three little gabled home uh, houses there, one of which was the post office, or a portion of it, the far left side in the front of Hugh O'Neill's. Across the street was the smaller structure, which was the bank. And then uh, on the same side of the street as the bank, about they, they used the about 200 feet away was the barbershop. And that's what uh, William Shiloh could see as he's waiting for haircuts and shaves uh, with the straight razor. He could see all the comings and goings in the quiet midday town so he became uh, he was a real pe- person i had him in the book in the middle of the book and then i thought about him making him a narrator in a way he's kind of my my nick Carraway from great gatsby or he's <laughs> yeah he's not uh, directly he does he does play a huge part in the book and in real in the real story he played a huge part but i didn't have a lot on him i had the census records i had uh, his family i had some of his uh, witness statement uh but he became a much bigger character so i think some people see uh, Edward Green as the main character, most people, but I also have William Shiloh as a witness, and his dilemma is uh, coming forward. He didn't see the crime, but he saw Edward leave uh, the bank, and he knew that they were close friends. Frank and Edward were very close friends, so he didn't think much of it, but uh, he he knew he was the last person in there 
before Frank's body, but before Frank was still alive when he was found, uh, the cashier of the bank, uh, Charles Merrill, his son, Robert Bobby Merrill, was only 14 and was in school. And the school was the Central Middle uh, Central School, which was further down Pleasant Street, uh, almost, I guess, where Border Borg would be. Okay. And uh, he was walking down to see his father midday, didn't know whether he was there or not. Charles had taken the train into Boston to exchange money because at that time uh, there was no federal currency. All the banks printed their own notes. So once a week, Charles or he would send Frank by train to Boston to exchange the notes. Uh, and, and Edward Green knew that he was, wasn't there. So when Robert, little Bobby Merrill, came down the street, he found Frank behind the counter and thought he just hit his head. They didn't, they didn't expect the gun wound. It was such a insane thing until the doctor arrived they didn't know that frank was shot wow that's a really interesting thing that you bring up about money because again you're putting us in the time period of the civil war and we forget um or you know maybe this is my own lens that i'm looking through but a lot of civil war era stories are are take place in the south we don't get a whole lot of civil war era stories that take place in the northeast yeah and that that's actually that's that's a, a very interesting statement because you know the the war isn't happening here and the and the, the young men are are traveling south and and uh, you know during the course of this novel i mentioned that uh, historical events of course lincoln's mentioned uh, uh emancipation proclamation was mentioned the gettysburg uh uh, the Battle of Gettysburg happens during the course of the novel, and that's that's mentioned by by characters. <clears throat> so it is the fabric of what's going on in their life, but it's it's far away. And as far as William Shiloh, as as a black man uh, in a in predominantly white town, as a barber, he's doing okay. Uh, again, some of it's fiction. I don't. I wasn't there at the time, but the uh, it's very it's very perilous because the war could come north and he could be enslaved again right. his family they don't know what's going on so it's uh one of the things i really enjoyed in the novel the chapter where the converse is very affluent the the converse mansion was on the end of main street wherever it currently is but ever was still part of malden until 1870 so in 1863 uh right where the, where the malden everett border is uh on uh Converse's head in the state, which was about seven acres, and I counted on the map. There's about 31 homes currently there, wow. where the state where, where where Frank was growing up. They had a, a greenhouse. Uh, people wouldn't think I put this in the book too. Only rich people ate salad because no one could grow their own vegetables. Right. He had a greenhouse. He had a pond. He had a, a gardener. He had, they had servants. Uh, so I had a, a chapter that I was very happy with, where I start off with Con uh, Elijah Converse's morning. He was a very good man. He's very dedicated, a very a Christian man. He was a deacon. Uh, gave a lot to our city that we have today. Uh, Pine Banks, the Felsmer Pond, uh, the old hospital, the, the old YMCA, the soldiers' home in Chelsea. Uh, a lot of the stuff was was because of Elijah Converse and, and Mary Converse, the library, of course. Uh, and then I, I had the next chapter where I have Clara, who's Edward's wife. Uh, and they're kind of scraping by, and then I had the Shilohs, uh, and their and their kind of uh, lifestyle. So I, I was very happy with that chapter as far as class, uh, a little bit of race, but mostly it's about class and just uh, uh, the ease and difficulty of life in 1863. Well, that's part of I think learning history and learning our history is remembering the stratifications of the different societies, and like that was actually how I was taught history and especially American history. 
And I think you get a sense and feel the vulnerability of, um, I'm sorry, is it William Shiloh? I, yeah, William Shiloh's the barber. William Shiloh, yeah. You get the sense of his vulnerability, even though he's a business owner and, you know, he's established in the community. He's still, like you said, if the war comes north, his his freedom could be in jeopardy. And um, it's an interesting peek inside uh, different levels or classes that were existing in Malden. I wonder if a similar story could potentially be written about our time period. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll mention one thing before I forget it, and then I'll, 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 uh, I'll respond to that last uh, point of interest. Uh, there's a line in the book I have somewhere in the long, I don't know where part of the book it is, but my proofreader, proofreader really liked it a lot, where I said that, and it's true, Williams Shiloh's uh, shop faced north with the south behind him. Yeah. It's, it's just it literally wow. is facing north from, from that side of, of Pleasant Street. That's uh, some feng shui as, right there, right? <laughs> a lot, I, see, I see these things, Felicia. I see so many connections, which are, uh, you know, I, it could be manufactured or just by happenstance, but I, I do see these the connections in the story and the time frame. And during it, you know, I wrote this from most of the last decade I was writing this. So uh, before COVID, but at the time they had TB, they had uh, what they called consumption. Yeah. And people could cough and people could get sick or people could die. So that was in the air. They had war, which luckily we don't have a civil war. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we won't never have another one again. Uh, and you had, uh, you know, race issues, which it's, you know, the slavery was, was in the South and you're fighting a war about it. And certainly uh, in 2020 and before 2020 and after 2020 is, 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 problems with with uh, with race racial justice in this country and uh also clara had she edward's wife became a much bigger character as well and she'll be in the second novel uh quite a bit she um you know time period is is uh you know is a woman who has dependent upon her husband and depending upon her circumstances uh you know was fictionalized but she uh, her original uh Suter was going to be an arranged marriage. There's a lot of these things that are uh, social society issues that were problems then, and, and things have been uh, changed and so forth, but there's still issues in a lot of uh, societal issues that we have now. So there are parallels, as you mentioned. Oh, definitely. Um, do you think that um, you made certain choices in your writing based on the type of work that you do for a day job? Like, do you see any parallels between your point of views or how you approach your story? I mean, I I, uh, I was an English literature major, uh, creative writing in high school, and then okay. uh, again the novel in my in my twenties, which was there. Uh, so the, the dream of always writing a novel since sitting in the Congress Memorial Library as a child, uh, I don't know if it was really in the forefront then, but in the back of my head, has been there. But uh, working in TV news and seeing crime and seeing uh, just the way things are shaped may have helped my storytelling somewhat, but I mm-hmm. think the reading always helps reading and, yeah. and just, and just writing, you know, like I read a great thing. I think just on Instagram or Twitter today or somewhere that you can, you can't, uh, you can always fix uh, a bad page that you're working on, but you can't fix a blank page unless you have to write, write it <laughs> and then work on it. Yeah. So, what's your writerly practice like? What a... it's, been, it's, it's very chaotic. I wouldn't. Uh, I, I I I've said this a few times um, in signings and so forth to people if they've asked me. Like I couldn't. Um, 
like a young person or whatever age, I, I uh, it wasn't the most efficient way to do it, but I, I just kept at it. I was I, in perseverance of eight eight years to write a novel, uh, and the last year was working with the, the copy editor, design cover with with a professional designer. Uh, he was in London. My copy editor, she's in Seattle, and the proofreader. It, it's uh, kind of honed the book. The book was in as good a shape as I could make it, and then I, with these professionals, like if you if people can work out and get in great shape, but if they go to a trainer, they you know they get in better shape. Um, so that's what I needed. But my my process was was sometimes I'd write, uh, sometimes handwriting, but sometimes just grab my phone in the middle of the night, three a.m., four a.m., have an idea. And it might be just a sentence or I could write seven pages. Yeah. Uh, and then some of it's good and I try to incorporate it into the story. But I, I, was, I just couldn't stop thinking about these people. Imagine that for eight years, thinking about <laughs> people who lived in 1863, whether it was Edward Green or William Shiloh or, or Clara uh, Green. Is they just or Elijah and Mary and Frank. Frank doesn't play a huge part. I mean, he... Uh, it's it's you know he's uh, he's part of it, but it's, it's really kind of the main gist of the story. I've had to think of characters was the motivation of kind of the uh, of Evergreen desperation to commit the murder, William Shiloh's reluctance to either come forward as a witness for for the justice of Frank and for uh, and for the Converse family, while also keeping his own family safe and position in town. Uh, Clara is the wife of a murderer, uh, you know, uh, and another character as well. And Elijah and Mary is, is the grieving parents of, of, a, of a young child, which, and it's hard, it's horrific, you know, working in news and living in, in this uh, uh, country, in this world. You, you see murder victims, family members crying, leaving uh, memorials at, at sites uh, in different parts uh, where there's crimes in the city or elsewhere in, in Boston. Um and some you know they get kind of you've seen it so often and it's very sad but it, you, you get inundated so it's here this had never happened before so that in 1863 uh, people certainly probably had been murdered but never by a gun and never in broad daylight so it was very traumatic especially uh, you know Frank was kind of seen as 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 kind of the the future of the company and the family. Well, I think it also taps into that idea that. Um, whenever there's violence in a community like that, a lot of people's first reaction is, oh, that can't take place here. Like, this is not, that. that's not our, that's, it's, uh, it's a violation of uh, their I- idea of what their community is, so. And this was, again, uh, Elijah Converse was deacon in the Baptist Church. Mm. And it was a very religious time period in 1863. Yep. And a very small town. Everyone probably knew most people didn't know everyone yeah and they close knit group groups always think it's an outsider that comes in they never think Absolutely, it's one of their own yeah the um <clears throat> i was going to ask you um how you decided to self-publish well it took me so long to write that i during the time period i would also research and uh, one of the podcasts i really enjoyed was the uh, creative pen joanna penn she's a british uh, author and, and um self-help uh, self-writing kind of uh, guru and so i listened to her thing and she'd have updates about different things and other other uh, research online and podcasts to figure out what to do and i i did only go 
uh, I think in 2016 or 2017, they had a writers' conference in Heinz Convention Center, and I went to that, and they had classes, and you pay X amount of money, and I did pay uh, to have sit-down pitches with with two agents, uh, and I chose them for their genres, and I memorized my pitch, and I didn't have notes or anything, and I, I, I you know, I'm not an actor, but I. I, I did very well on my audition as far as presenting my story, <laughs> and and the, the novel still had some some work to, to do. You know, I had to tenderize the meat some more. I wasn't quite ready to cook, but the uh, and then gave them both of them. We gave them a chapter or a couple of chapters to read. And I realized too the the problem was the first chapter initially was inside Edward's head, and it was it was kind of too much. It was after him leaving the scene of the crime, which is still in the book, but it's kind of toned down and. Uh, and not as, as uh, arduous as it was at the time. Uh, so those are the only two agents that I pitched to. I never sent an inquiry letter, a query letter to anyone. Uh, and I just I knew from my research that if I did, you need an agent for as a gatekeeper to get mm-hmm. to the the public uh, publications, the publishing houses, the big ones, the small ones, the university presses, and. I also knew that they would have a lot more control over the book. They could change the title. They could change the Absolutely. cover. They could change yep. some of the plot, perhaps. And I wanted to kind of, I put so much time into it that I wanted to make all the decisions. And so I did take advice from my copy editor uh, and my proofreader, of course. Uh, but the the book, everything in there is, is is my story or my choice. And my other concern, Felicia, was that I knew so many books are published and is a kind of a line. So even if you are going to get published. It could be two years from after they sign you. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I couldn't wait any longer. This this uh, this baby was ready to pop. I was working on this for so long, <laughs> and and I just I just it would have been such an anticlimactic thing for me to, you know, uh, be done with it, yeah. uh, and then wait two years because I didn't really tell a lot of people. Some people knew I was writing a novel, but I I didn't post about it. Uh, I know some some aspiring writers do that, and it helps with motivation on social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. But I I didn't want to really talk about it until it was more mature. Mm-hmm. But self publishing, I mean, I still think about it, and, and I think it works. Uh, traditional publishing is great for a lot of people, uh, but I you know, I, it, Malden was a big part of my sales strategy, and I didn't really, from my point of view, uh, didn't need an agent or a, uh, a publisher to sell the story that's key to our history in Malden. Right. Once I got the mayor on board too. I mean, the mayor read my book and, and Gary's terrific. Uh, like I said, Kevin Duffy's terrific. Yeah, they are. The, uh, the mayor read the book. He put a tweet out. Uh, he said he read it in about three days. And the only way it would be better is if it turned into a Netflix series. I said, Keep talking. <laughs> How cool would that be? You seem to you've got, I, go ahead. Uh, uh, well, you know, they're going to shoot a, I don't know when your podcast is going to be come out, but uh, this Friday on Summer Street, they're shooting a, a scene for the new Boston Strangler movie. Oh yes, yeah, I've heard about uh, this. And it's, it's 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 based on two of the Globe reporters, uh, female reporters who yep. broke the story, coined the frame Boston Strangler. Karen Knightley's in it, Chris Cooper's in it. Uh, so I, uh, you know, we got to work every angle. I went down. Kevin, luckily, he's, he's very, a very good guy. He. Uh, I signed a copy for the director and for Chris Cooper, and, and apparently their personal assistants have them now, and hopefully they'll see them. And if, they, if they're interested <laughs> or not, it's, it's taking a gamble. Oh, very cool. It seems like you've gotten some nice traction. I know that 
Um, you've gotten some some press around it and some interviews, which is great. And I'm thrilled that you were able to come here and talk about it as well. And as I said, uh, you know, I'm about halfway through. I know you have a second book coming out. Is it? Yes. Are we, it, were you thinking this year is going to be the? Uh, you... I'm hoping. I'm, I'm, uh, the, I'll give you the, the thing. So the, the eight years of writing it was 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 900 pages at one point. So I oh had my uh, goodness. like King uh, King Solomon. I, I, I cut it in half. <laughs> it was there's, there's two baby references already. It's two. It was too uh, convoluted. You're going through and you're trying to connect all the dots. Mm-hmm. And you add one thing and then you mess up something else. So I. The only way I could really finish it was I, I took the book about halfway through, which luckily ends on a, a very good uh, point, so it can continue into the second book. So, I, again, I took the file. I used uh, Scrivener to write, and also I, I had to use Word once I, I worked with my copy editor because I prefer that. But I cut it in two, and then I really polished the first part over maybe two, two, two and a half years, which is a big chunk of time. Yeah. Uh, and then working with the with the professionals. So the second book is the whole plot continues the story, goes through, um, I don't want to say exactly, but it goes through more of the characters, goes through the Converse family, uh, the creation of the library, and, and uh, Elijah and Mary's uh, life is another kind of, uh, the murder is a, a big part of the first book, but there's an event in the second book, which is, which is really kind of what drew me to the story because it, it's there's another huge arc. I love that it's Min Pin Publishing. Yeah, well, that's why I have a miniature picture. I left her downstairs <laughs> so she wouldn't bark. And she was. Uh, and that's uh, Guinness. The name is Guinness. She's she's black and tan. She's pint sized, and she takes a long time to settle. <laughs> yeah. So she's she's downstairs, but she was. Uh, I I call her my publisher because she. Uh, I mean, my wife was supportive. My dog was, you know, on the late nights, the dog was uh, lying next to me on the couch. Yeah. And she had some corrections occasionally, so I would uh, I listen to her. That's good. That's really good. I like that. Do you belong to any um, writers groups at all? Do you? you... No, I'm an, odd, I'm an odd duck because I, you know, years ago, I, when I was in my 20s, I looked at Grub Street. I looked at some of those other things. Yep. And I, it was such, and it's great to have community and stuff, but I was such a, a, a I don't want to, how do I put this? Um, you know, I'm not an introvert. Uh, I can talk to anyone. I feel comfortable in, in almost all situations, but the writing was very solitary. And so maybe that's why it took me so long. <laughs> because I, everybody's, I just on it. Yeah. Everybody's process is different, though. And, you know, I happen to belong to the Malden Writers Collaborative. Um, and I've found good community there and actually really good motivation. But I, but the thing that I've learned also from my podcast and talking to other writers, everybody's process is different. And, and I have great respect for that. And I learn things from hearing how other people have approached their work. Some people are super prolific. Some people need that solitary time. Um, some people want to self-publish for exactly the reasons you've described. So I think it takes all different methods, and I don't think there's any one right way. The one thing I, I think I, I, I put a work for everyone else too, but it, and it was very helpful with me, and I did it over and over and over and over and over again. It wasn't just for dialogue, but it was just for flow. I would, uh, you know, the, you could read aloud, that's all well and fine, but I, uh, whether it's Scrivener or through Word, I would use the read aloud option and yeah, choose you know, a couple of voices. So I, I would hear the diction and hear the, the flow of it. I use the robot voice and word too to, to listen to the work. 
it helps. But, you know, it, it, it's not as robotic as it used to be. They have, uh, <laughs> They've made it better. They're pretty better. You know, you can do, uh, you know, in Word, you have more choices. Uh, my Scrivener program's from 2012, so it's just one, one male voice. But it's not too stilted. I mean, it doesn't sound conversational per se, but it, you really do get some emphasis on words and you can mm-hmm. kind of see the flow. And it's almost like someone else is reading your book to you. So, I mean, exactly what it is, but it's, 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 it gives you outside of your mind. I think um, it's a good practice to read your work, too, because um, you always get so much when the writer reads their work. Um, I know that from the workshops that I've participated in, you hear inflection and tone. It really, it really comes alive. So I think that that's a really... what. Do you enjoy that part when you've been out and about and, like, done public readings? Do you enjoy, like, performing? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I've only done a couple of them. I mean, even this the small thing I read to you is I've, I've only uh, – the one at Two O'Neill's was, was a good 20 minutes. I was in the, – the part of the chapter I read was the entire chapter leading up to that, the whole morning with Edward Green uh, kind of uh, thinking about what he's going to do or if he's going to do it and then the different kind of scenarios that, that uh, unfold uh, – no, I mean it's it's it is fun and it, it's you know it's a little nerve wracking, but it, it's a good thing about uh, either a, a book or some. I used uh, an iPad because it's 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 easier to just move your thumb than it is to flip the pages. And sometimes yes, if you're reading, I know absolutely. it's more traditional read from a book, but um, no, it's good. And I did think about an audio book. Some people have asked about an audio book. And that's that's an expense as well. I have to think about. But uh, I know an I know excellent one. voice actor. If you ever want one, okay. I mean, I think about. I mean, I know uh, if someone does, if they do a memoir, it's great if if that individual right. uh, reads in their own voice their own story. But since this is uh, well, multiple characters and so forth, it would be better to uh, uh, have a, someone who's seasoned. Yeah, he has a fantastic voice, and he's Mald. He's a Malden. He's a well native Maldonian. He lives in um, the Fall River area now, but he he's done okay. a few commercials, and he's got an amazing voice. So. If you want yeah, I mean, that connection. <laughs> all right. Cool, thank you. I did read, I watched something recently about the, I can't think of his name, but there is a, there's a couple of people, but there's one particular um, voiceover uh, professional who is like, he has a six month uh, waiting list for, you know, high big name authors are waiting for him. He, he does a lot of, uh, I think he's on 900 books. I think he's done like wow. 15 years or something. So I, I, and yet, you know, no one would know his name, but they probably would know his voice. Uh, if I could think some of the, uh, famous authors you've done. I read the article. I can't think of it offhand. So with um, with all of your Irish references, are you all things Ireland? Have you been there? I've been. Uh, my parents are both Irish born. I've been to Ireland. Uh, if you're ready for this, I've been to Ireland 28 times. Oh, wow. I spent, uh, when I was, from the time I was six months old until I was 15, I spent, so I guess the first 15 years of my life, I spent a month every summer. Do you did you have grandparents that were still there? Is yeah, my, my yeah my my, uh, my father's parents, my my mother's parents had passed. So my grandmother lived in the house when I was a child. But uh, we'd go over to Galway, uh, my father's part, and then Cork, uh, Killarney, up towards Kerry would be my mother's area. Um, yeah, so every so those fifteen summers, like you know, fifteen months, and and then you know, multiple times since. Uh, last time I was there three years ago, I guess now. Do you have dual citizenship? I, I technically I have dual citizenship. I don't have the passport. I, I do have again both parents are Irish born, so I, I would have automatically the citizenship unless they ever change that. 
but I have I do not have did not have the passport. You should get an a writer in residence. Um, oh, that'd, that'd be interesting. Stipend. I thought about when I was young. I thought about going to Trinity. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it. Uh, I went to Suffolk instead. <laughs> it's <laughs> <strange>. <laughs> and I was fine. Well, I was easy to get home. Ireland loves its writers. I know that that it, it's more common to find, um, especially in the European Union, that um, the state actually will underwrite you, and it's a more common thing to have like an artist in residence and be able to you know get a stipend and do your work. So I'm only looking into that because my my uh, grandmother is from France, so my technically I can get dual citizenship in the e in france from france because if i get it through my dad and then i could get eu citizenship so yeah and you mentioned i, I made a couple irish references i mean i uh, the main thing uh, most of the people in malden the white people in malden were anglo-saxons mm-hmm. uh and and in those uh, william shiloh would come up from the south as a black man with his family uh there wasn't a lot of immigrants uh you know, initially, when there was a stranger in town that was uh, reported around the time of the murder, and they they described him as, as unusual or, or funny dress. Uh, so initially, I made him a German because uh, again it was eighteen sixty, uh, and then I changed it to Italian because I was drinking a Santilli beer from Night Shift. <laughs> I named him Santilli. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yep. What was the immigration pattern at that period of time? Do you well, know? Well, mostly, I mean, the, the Italians and East, uh, mostly was uh, was was old Yankees. I mean, the Converse family, uh, Elijah Converse's ancestor was not on the Mayflower, but uh, later wave. Yeah. Uh, around sixteen twenty nine, I think. Uh, I can't think of the name of the ship. I know the ship. It's named after the insurance company Arabella. I think they, 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 Arabella. Really, yeah, it was the Arabella ship that they came over. And they got really good insurance rates at the time. Um, <laughs> the Devil in the White City, the Eric Larson novel. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't call it a novel. He is a nonfiction writer, and he makes it clear in the beginning of his books that everything is taken from a diary or taken, um, you know, not, none of it is uh, fictional. But I, and I think when I started writing this book, too, I, from a journalistic standpoint, um, my first major in college actually was, was, uh, was going to be in newspapers. I was going to look for that genre, and then I segued the TV. And um, but I think as I wrote the book and I had all the facts and just the research too of hundreds of newspapers from the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, so forth. Uh, the census records on the main families involved, uh, genealogy, everything I can look into to kind of get delve into the Converses, the Greens, the Shilohs. Um, it's I started good. thinking, what would they say? And so the, the, the muse took over. So yeah. it changed from, from, from nonfiction to fiction. And the fiction is kind of a, uh, in, a, in some ways, and this could be debated by people, fiction is almost more honest than nonfiction because I think a lot of uh, research is, is, when I look at these newspaper articles, sometimes they would be um, things that can conflict. And so what do you believe, even from the historical record, and you, you see... Um, from what I read in my research initially, Peter, they called him Peter Shiloh. And I've seen even there's a book published uh, in the last few years that described him as Peter Shiloh. But when I looked at all the uh, census records in the time period, it was William Shiloh. And so uh, also some of the stuff called uh, Edward Green's wife, 
was Barbara Ames, but her name was Clara Allen from uh, from Cambridge, and uh, her parents were immigrants from I you know, from Nova Scotia that came south. So there are some in history itself. There's always you know they say history is written by the winners, and people sometimes have their own. Uh, I read something the other day. I'm not sure if it's true, but the number of times a day a person lies. It's like multiple times a day. So there's it's it's fiction in a way is, is you know that it is I'm selling that it's fiction. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you have nonfiction, you know, you have you have many, probably have ten books on Winston Churchill, they're all different, Abraham Lincoln. So uh that's just my point of view. It's kind of more fun to write fiction. I I, I don't I'm not uh, uh scholarly work is great. Eric Larson, I've loved everything he's done. Uh other great nonfiction writers, memoirists. But fiction just seems more fun for me. Yeah, I agree. I and I also don't I don't subscribe to there's no I don't believe that there's pure nonfiction and even um even I I write poetry and memoir and and um point of view is point of view. Like point of view could mean I could be writing about a time period in my life where I felt differently about a subject, so I'm gonna view it through a different lens. And that's still an 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 accurate and um, valid point of view. It just happens to be from a very select time period. And it's also my own. So someone else standing next to me could have had a very different interpretation of those events. Um, I just read, I read a study uh, just recently about, I don't know what country it was in or, or how far, how long it was, but they had these you know, college students and they had them uh, on camera. They knew they were on camera and they were being asked questions. And then after after they were asked, to watch themselves and ask and say if they fibbed or lied, and they all admitted to lying, <laughs> even small ways. It, it, but they didn't realize it when they when they started. Oh, that's not true. Why did I say that? Yeah, and uh, how we portray or describe an event also sometimes has to do with our own ethos, and it can also have to do with the audience or the people that we're speaking to. So we may extract certain facts or add certain information, thinking that that will potentially help our audience or people we're speaking to understand what we're saying. So... (laughs) There's there's really no such thing as like that purity. Um, I don't I don't know if I believe in the lying part, but I do believe in the um, well, potentially not hundred percent truthful thing. Oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying I shouldn't say lying. I mean, I think of uh, uh, even there's, I mean, it's hard to know if you read something. Maybe the the nonfiction writer who goes back to 1860 or 1900 or wherever they he or she. Uh, looks at this, they may get what they what the person said, but that said that person may not be a reliable witness as well. Um, so I mean, it's not, complete nonfiction is 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 somewhat uh, hard to, to yeah, guarantee. Agreed. I, I thought about James Fry. You know the main little yes. Oh yeah, I think about that uh, all the time. And I think about too, as far as news and my history of news. I think about uh, how Amanda Knox and also um, Richard Jewell. Were, were vilified, and they were both, uh, you know, innocent of those crimes. Right. Yeah. The, the press goes with that, uh, and that's a whole other issue. I just I was thinking about this. So fiction, to me, I've, I've had some people, uh, you know, very small amount of people thought this book would be a nonfiction book, and I, I do say it's historical fiction. I, I did the research. I mean, I did a lot of research. The names are correct. 
I would say 90, 90 95% of the characters are all real people. Their names are correct. Researched as best they could. The dialogue is, is fictional. Uh, the scenes are based on what happened or, or some other scenes were staged to move the narrative. That's, that's part of it. But, um, you know, I think it was more enjoyable for me to write. And you got to think about, you know, as you know, I'm not a super successful author before this point, And then I, uh, I was writing stories for myself as much as anyone else. I like that. I mean, I, I think there's no such thing. I don't think novel is a dirty word, especially when you're applying it to historical fiction or memoir. It's a way to offer the audience the understanding that, like you said, perhaps you moved things around for flow or you imagined conversations. But I think that yeah. helps deepen the understanding of, like you said, the time period, the characters, the cru crux of the story, the conditions under which the story happened and who those people potentially might have been or were. or it, like We can look at all the timeline and the dates and the facts, but that doesn't really give us a sense of place. And I think what you're getting at in your book is a sense of place. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I always think of like the, the far... The furthest point of fiction is Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln is a vampire slayer. So I'm not going with that. <laughs> and I, I love, you know, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, and all this stuff. It's terrific. And I, again, I, I, the space are coming. Just wait until the last chapter, Felicia. You'll be surprised. No, I, I, this is, you know, it's based, it's, you know. It's when did the on, aliens come in? They, uh, they uh, <laughs> You want me to ruin it for you? <laughs> no, 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 no. And we're just kidding. There's no aliens in this There's story. no aliens, no. It, but I, um, my proofreader to you know keep me certain terms and stuff. You want to make sure that the terms are correct to the time. Like I thought at one point, just a simple thing like uh, uh, green was uh, covering all the bases. But you know, in 1863, baseball was not a a, right. a known uh, sport. It might have been played, so I changed the angle. So these small small little changes, which more uh, to the time period, some word choices. I used the word Fortnite. One of my friends said to me. You know, don't use the word Fortnite. I go, that's what they called it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. They called it a Fortnite. Very true. Um, do you have, you mentioned a bunch of different authors and podcasts, but would you repeat again for me the name of the podcast that you were, were interested in? Uh, Joanna Penn is very popular. Uh, she's called The Creative Penn with two N's, uh, British. Uh, she has a, I think that's a, the podcast called The Creative Penn. So she does interview authors. A lot of them are sometimes uh, from the UK. There are Americans that go on there. But she does little updates, too, with uh, publishing, whereas, whether it's the big publishing houses or Amazon or uh, audiobooks, different things. So she is, has been very uh, helpful to me, uh, among other people I listen to. I can probably look at my phone and see what the other podcasts I listen to are. But uh, uh, Are you reading anything these days? I'm uh, focusing on the book right now, book two, but I, I just listened to uh, The Four Agreements from... Don Miguel Ruiz. Yep, yep, I like that. And that was kind of just kind of more perspective thing. I'm, uh, in the last year, two of the books I enjoyed uh, uh, were The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue mm -hmm. from V. Schwab. And I also have been a fan of Matt Haig for a while. So The Midnight Library has been a bestseller, and that was yeah. a very fun read as, as well. The, um, what is it, um, Integrity with Your Word, that that one always sticks with me from the agreements. Yeah. <laughs> and then don't take things personally. That is, that is huge. That is a huge one. That's so easy. And that would prevent a lot of problems for, for myself and people. I think it's a natural instinct to... Uh, Absolutely. Uh, to, you know, 
takes things in stride. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing the people who, because you're just carrying the weight of other people and they've moved on. I mean, I know people from, from, uh, they're still upset at things that happened in high school. <laughs> That's what Facebook the, is, right? <laughs> yeah. You ever see that? I always think about, uh, I don't know if it's Happy Gilmore or something where, where uh, Sandler calls up Steve Buscemi and he's like, you know, I, I treated you kind of like crap in high school. I'm really sorry. And Steve Buscemi is like perfectly, oh, that's fine. No problem. And when he hangs up, he, he has a list that says people are going to kill and he crosses off. <laughs> really yeah. It's uh, so, it's true, and it's funny how, like, a small book like The Four Agreements kind of sticks with you because um, it seems like really simple things in it, it. It did have a following. It was sort of new agey. It came out around the same time as The Secret. But mm-hmm. it's, so, it's so based in some real concrete things that if you can try to apply them in small ways, it saves you with so much time yeah. and suffering in your own life. And as much as, I mean, I, I also, uh, an audiobook. I, I listened to, I, I won't say the full title, but the, the subtle act of not giving a... Yeah, well, you can say fuck uh, on the show. It's okay. Oh, yeah, wonderful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, but, I had a... But that was kind of, uh, do you have a, okay, I, the, uh, I, I kind of listened or read those kind of back to back and they're a little bit different but they have kind of some of the same themes but uh absolutely it's just so that's more of a kind of life perspective than say literature but there are a lot of uh when you you know audiobooks or, or reading that can really draw you in films of course can do the same yes uh and and, and i was just so caught up in my own story for so long and i uh, now uh the second book i have been writing some scenes i have again i have the whole i mean there's 300 400 pages there but they they have to be kind of uh, gone through and then when i feel it's ready hopefully which will be uh it's already middle of january almost uh, i'm hoping at some point to reach out to my copy editor i, I, I messaged her a month ago that uh, i was going to uh, send her this uh, the second book at some point and she's you know her schedule's open and she's ready for it um I'm hoping that process. I want to really get the book out for the. There'll be more summer festivals, I think, in yes. this year. Yes, uh, definitely. So I'd like to. That's Malden is kind of my my base, and it's been, you know, it was really terrific to, to yourself and other people that I, I met. I feel more connected to the city than I had in all my years of living here. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. I love. I love to hear that. Do you do anything I, else besides your writing and your day job? Do you like have a hobby or play music or? I am. Uh, I've done some. My wife's a, a marathon runner. I've I've done some running. I've uh, a little slower in the in the last year or so. With uh, but I, uh, I'm scheduled for my first marathon in the Vineyard uh, on on Memorial Day. Oh, congratulations! So I got to amp up my training a little bit for that. Um, but I've done. I think I've done seven half marathons. Oh, that's but amazing. But not one for about a year and a half. Very cool. That's that's very cool. Um, and then you have your min pin. So you can't take yeah, your min she, pin running, can you? No, no. She's 13. She, uh, she used, we, last year we went on, uh, I saw more Malden with her because I went on these neighborhoods. We, even when she was, you know, she's 13, when she was 12, she, we'd go for an hour some days on those little legs. <laughs> my legs are bigger. Her, my, my legs are normal size. Her, Do you live near the bike path at all? I'm not too far from the bike path, but I would take her um, uh, just left right i let her choose the direction a lot of times mm-hmm. and I, I realized we're going too far if we you know it's a long way home but um 
I've, I've not taken, I think I took her a little bit down the bike path one time, but, um, you know, I used to sometimes drive the pine banks and, but I don't want to really leave her off leash because she's tiny and she's old now. Yes. Uh, we have yeah. coyotes around here too. I'm concerned about those. Yeah. I have a greyhound and, um, he just turned seven and, um, he, we live right on the bike paths. Um, I'm in, um, um, the Linden area. So okay. basically the end of my street and then you just take a left and the bike path is there. So we can go either way. We can go towards Saugus and Revere or we can go up towards Malden Center. And um, uh, have you, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Have you, uh, since you live in Linden, have you read Linden on the Saugus branch? Or are you familiar with yes. That yeah. Yeah. My, people, um, some people have kind of compared mine somewhat, you know, it's different, but yeah, well, the, my neighbors who bought your book, who recommended you and said, oh, you should go talk to him. He'd be an interesting guest for your podcast. Both had read the um, Lyndon Onsagas book. And uh, the house that we live in is a family home. Our friends own it now. But the it's three generations that have lived in that home. And he's very involved in the history of Malden and the, his different family members and tracking, things like that. So any kind of history of Malden they're into. So they were the fans I, that directed me towards you. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. It's in some people it's been, uh, it's kind of, you know, again, in this, in a small way, I read one, one of these blogs on writers or Instagram or Twitter, whenever it be. Uh, and what makes you successful as a writer. And some people have, you know, very big goals. And some people have small goals just being published or, or even if, you know, if they, publish, uh, you know, print a book and have someone read it, so, you know, very small things to grandiose things. And so I, I feel, I don't know what my, my goals were beforehand. I knew I was self-publishing. Uh, I did get into, uh, you know, gallery of, and Malden Square, they've been terrific, gallery at 57. Gallery 57 is great. About, I've been in uh, about seven Barnes and Nobles. Uh, the cold call them, that's different than having a publisher. But even for my, uh, maybe, you know, this, uh, but for my research, you know, if you, even if you have an agent, you have a publisher, uh, if you're a new author, you may not get a lot of the, uh, the social, uh, you know, they wouldn't advertise as much and they won't reach out. You have to kind of do a lot of your own you legwork. You have to yes. so, self-reference on social media. So, so I, I just, you know, I had to call, call people. I did call one, I won't say what city or what store it was, but when I, the day after my first Malden, uh, the first day I sold my book, which was the second Malden Festival, June, I want to say June 12th, if I, my memory serves me, a Saturday. Um, and I did very well. And it was the Facebook groups were, were, were terrific. A shout out to my friend Peter Casso, who is, uh, has a Facebook group all about Malden. He was, he's been very supportive and, uh, you know, put, put is the word it Malden out. back in the day? Well, he, uh, there's a Malden back in the day site, which was, was very helpful in the beginning, too. And then Peter has a site called uh, all about Malden. Oh, okay. About 6,000 6, people, and he keeps up to date with when stores are opening. I'll have opening. to tell my he husband. Is, he loves things like that. He yeah, Peter's kind of, kind of a celebrity in, in town as well, so he's been very helpful. And uh, I did name uh, – I hadn't met him uh, when I was reading the book, but I saw him on social media, and he, his father had passed away, uh, and it was very upsetting to him. So I, uh, when I made The Stranger in Town from German to Italian and named the Santilli – uh, there was another Italian waiting at the depot, so I named it after his father. Oh, I like that. And so he was, he was he was very happy with that, uh, moved by that when I when I met him. Um, yeah, so yeah, Malden, I, my success is, 
it's fun. I mean, it's, it's nice. Uh, you know, the limited success it was, and just it's great just to talk, like being alone as a writer and not being in the writer groups and insular. Uh, it's like a champagne cork coming out now. I can talk about <laughs> my book all day. Well, you're you're welcome to come and talk to us at the Mullen Writers Collaborative. We're a very uh, receptive group. We're in the middle oh, of our season now, but um, we have a a, a year end uh, where we do a public reading through the library of all the different works that's been workshopped. They just workshopped my work, which was lovely. Um, I'm writing a memoir that is based on the different colors that make up my favorite color. So each chapter is a color. It's a mixture of genre. So I write some fantastical fiction. I write some uh, memoir. I write some personal essay. I write poetry. Um, So I've got my hands involved in a lot of different things. I'm on the board of... um, Malden Reads and our book for this year is um, Joy Harjo's American Sunrise, which is a book of poetry. Um, I bought I, I, at the Winter Festival, which was very frigid. Yes, I was seated next to the, the Malden Reads and uh, Jody, and, and I, I did uh, uh, purchase that book. And I, I, I started a little bit into it, but I need to get more into it. Uh, There's great. To read the rest of it. There was a poem that I read that I thought complimented your book um, that will be part of the podcast. But uh, she also has a memoir called Crazy Brave. And um, it is a lot about like soldiers coming to take and displace ancestors. So I thought that that was kind of interesting juxtaposition from your work. So just in a way of wrapping up what how tell us again how people can find you and they can buy your book what what methods do you prefer my my uh my website is is my name michaelclarity.com which has my social media links in the homepage: facebook instagram twitter and youtube there i do have some videos as a video yeah. editor i have some um, video watch, trailers i made for the i book. watch them they look great oh, oh thank you and um and then the book is available the closest location is the gallery 57 that's great. And do you wear the Converse sneakers? I, I do. Uh, I, when I dressed up for the, uh, I called it Converse Day at Given. So at the Hugh O'Neill's on December 15th was the anniversary of the murder. That morning I went to Woodlawn Cemetery where Frank is buried and, and uh, left, you know, I had kind of connection. I'd go there during the novel uh, a few times, you know, not a lot of times, but, you know, being there as a writer uh, with the real place, I know actors sometimes when they meet, the real people they're throwing the roles on or they go to the scene uh, to go, you know, not just walking down Pleasant Street and, and where the bank was and so forth, but to go to the grave and go to the library. Uh, I felt the connection. So I left roses on, on Frank's grave uh, on the pretty much at the time he was killed. I mean, he was killed between 1130 and 1145. He died around noon. Uh, so I was there at that point. And then at noon, just, you know, it's, there's no magic to it. There's a church nearby, so the bells rang when I was there filming the graves, the church bells. And uh, that evening, I had grown sideburns out like Edward Green. Of course, he was, I can't be Edward Green because for multiple reasons. One, he was about five foot tall. Um, I'm about five nine. He was 26 at the time of the murder. I'm, I'm not that anymore. And he was a murderer, so I've not, uh, but I grew the sideburns out. <laughs> and I dressed as much as I could like Edward Green to do the reading at, at, at Hugh O'Neill's. And the, the first book was uh, auctioned off. I shouldn't say auctioned off, but those were uh, not a, a, it was kind of a people would give money to the bread of life 
We raised uh, the first book raised ninety dollars for the first signed hardcover. That's great. That was numbered, and then I I just went by the bread left today uh, and gave them a check as well. So between that and then some other donations uh, involved with the book, uh, Bread of Life received about four hundred dollars. Oh, that's so nice. That's a great organization. Yeah, it's terrific. And I wanted to the murder affected the Converse family, but Elijah and Mary gave so much to the town that I wanted it to be kind of a, a Converse day of giving. So I'm hoping every year to do a reading and have some kind of charitable donation in honor of the not just Frank's death, but also of his parents' philanthropy towards our city. That's awesome. Um, I have one quick question. <clears throat> um, I was really interested in the um, in the ode that the Converse family had. Um, uh, they hired a poet to create a tribute to him. Yes. What um, do you think that that was like a, a wealthy co- a thing that wealthy families could do for family members? Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I mean, that's. I was astounded when I found that. I mean, I found a lot of stuff that's real. I, I found. Uh, um, but to find that actual document uh, is is the affluence of the Commerce family. I mean, Frank's grave in Woodlawn uh, now it's 158 years old, but it's his face. Uh, his face and part of his torso was carved into the stone. Uh, it's very elaborate. I'm sure it looked much more lifelike uh, in 1863, and it becomes part of the novel uh, at one point. Um, yeah, it was affluence and connection. I want I want a patron. I... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, the it, it'll it's not much of a spoiler, but it'll be in the second book at some point. I don't know how big of a part we'll play, but it's in the Malden Library as well. That uh, the first phone call in history was, you know, Watson, can you hear me? The second phone call in history, because uh, Elijah Converse was an investment uh, initially in Alexander Graham Bell. The second phone call was from. Uh, the Converse office on Tremont Street or Congress Street, I think it was Tremont Street at that point, to his Malden home uh, in the second phone call in history. That's so that's not cool. something you, you know, that's like, he, was, he wasn't quite the Jeff Bezos of 1860, but he was he was pretty affluent. Yeah. I mean, Goodyear came much later and made, made the killing with the rubber business, but uh, he was very well to do and they had a lot to do with the, uh, when he died, when, when Elijah Converse died in 1904, he was worth uh, $10 million, which is worth about $300 million today. Yeah. And also another little fun fact as far as money, the $5,000 that Edward Green stole on December 15, 1863 is worth about $617,000 in today's money. Wow. Wow. But it wasn't it wasn't federal money. It was just... It was the Malden Bank notes. Yeah, that's why it was easy to, to kind of... Uh, uh, the detectives were looking for those notes that were passed, and there were a lot of more hundred dollar bills. Uh, so that's that's another part of the story. But uh, yeah, you couldn't really. The detective work is kind of fascinating to me too. I mean, I had read like the the Alienist and some other. Uh, that's a fictional book, but yep. that had real people in it, like uh, Roosevelt when he was commissioner, police commissioner, in New York City. Um, but. but that- but that story is also about the development of sort of psychological profiles in crime detective sure. history. And, so. and uh, you know, the, the, the detective itself, uh, uh, there was no police involved. There was a constable. Uh, and a lot of the police in, in, in Boston and most of the country at that point uh, earlier were, were just people who had full-time jobs and they were like night watchmen. So it wasn't until 1854 that the Boston Police Department was established. 
and they had five detectives and two of those detectives, uh, Ethan Jones, uh, in real life were detectives in the case and, and played a, play a big part in the story at one point. Did they use, um, what was like the private detective company? Oh, the, 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 the Pickertons, they were yeah. more kind of in the South. I mean, they, they did, I think, were involved with Jesse James and, and, uh, and then those, that's, uh, you know, very wealthy railroad and other people paying for, for their protection uh, without really kind of having, I, I, mean, I don't know exactly, but probably wasn't a great state police or, 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 or regulated police forces in the country in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. Um, but those, you know, so Frank was found dead on a Tuesday uh, around noon. He's, he dies. And it is in the New York Times. It, it's in the local papers in, in Boston that afternoon, but it was in the New York Times the next day. During the Civil War, this little murder in Malden uh, makes makes the New York Times the next day. Uh, the detectives can't come until the next day to investigate it, and there's no fingerprints for another uh, from 1860 to. I fingerprints came in 30 or 40 years later. Wow! So, and you certainly don't have any DNA or, or blood work. You know, they just pick bodies up or blood. They would move people. They move Frank to the door to get mayor. So, uh, there's none of that kind of forensics that they had. So it was based really on on eyewitness testimony eyewitness, and confessions yeah. pretty much and you look at the salem witches they were all just accused and they were completely yeah. innocent of, certainly innocent of those crimes yeah absolutely i was i mean i feel like i could talk to you even more but it was a pleasure um and i can't wait to read the second book i can't wait to finish this one um oh, but i love talking to writers about their craft and you know what inspires them and um, thank you for sharing your time, and I definitely look forward to seeing you around Malden, and especially when we can be outside and <laughs> with each other yeah. again. Thank you. That's why I mean, the last summer, I'll just leave you with this. The last summer was people asked me if I timed it up, but it just took me so long to write the book, and then the pandemic happened, and then it eased enough for us to have these festivals and so forth. So that it was, it was uh, the timing was good for that window. And I hope we return to that again. Yeah, me too. Me too. We'll take care, and I definitely hope to see you out and about in Malden. And we'll get a Guinness. Do they allow men pins in, in O'Neill's? They should, if they don't. <laughs> they might make an exception for me. I uh, think they it's, should. It's been nice to me. I appreciate your time, and, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. The Malden Reed selection for this season is An American Sunrise by Joy Harjo. This is her poem called Rising and Falling. Human poetry is a restless soul and does not always know what it holds when it is regaling beloved guests at a table graced with food and drink. What songs of tempestuous rising and falling one country after another? Hi Felicia is produced by Felicia Ryan and she retains all broadcast rights and copyrights to this program. Theme music provided by Stephanie Griffin. Technical support by Heather McCormick. Our sound editing is done by Sully Banger. Social media maven, previous guest, and my online content guru is Rachel Lento. Hi Felicia is supported in part by a generous grant from the Malden Cultural Council and recorded in cooperation with UMA Urban Media Arts in downtown Malden. You can find Hi Felicia on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Podbean, and most platforms a podcasts are found. Please take a moment to like, download, write a review, and share this program. You are our ears. Thanks for listening. 
To find out more about High Felicia or our guest or how to support this podcast, you can visit our Facebook page, our Instagram page, or www.feliciaryan.com, which is F-E-L-I-C-I-A-R-Y-A-N. And again, thanks for listening. Thank you.